Does your dog know the name of his or her toys? Maybe one toy name or two or five or 10 or 12? Well, what about 50? We all think we have the most gifted, the most intelligent, the smartest dog around. But for those dogs who have learned the names of dozens of toys, what makes them able to do that? Well, a team of researchers has been working to figure that out. Hello, I'm James Jacobson. Welcome to The Long Leash. Today on the show, dog geniuses. What does it mean to be a truly gifted dog? Researcher Dr. Claudia Fugazza has been on a mission to better understand how dogs learn, and particularly why some dogs appear to be prodigies of learning the names of their toys. You may have heard of dogs celebrated that know Oh, lots of things, like the smartest dog around knew a thousand toys by name. We're not sure if that's exactly true, but it is a rare skill, and that is what we are looking at today. Is it in the dog's breed, or is it the way they were trained, or were they just talented? Dr. Fugatsa and her colleagues at the University of Budapest wanted to find out, and thus the Genius Dog Challenge was born. In her search to better understand the language and the talent of dogs, Dr. Fugatsa has started an online initiative to study more dogs around the world who may be extra toy named talented. In our conversation today, we delve into the world of dog learning and how you can test if your dog is a genius. Dr. Claudia Fugazza, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for inviting me. So we were really intrigued with your work because, you know, I have used to have the smartest dog in the world and your focus has been on smart dogs. I'm kind of kidding, I think, because it's not the kind of smart dogs that you've been looking at. But when you are looking for a smart dog, and you've been on worldwide searches for a handful of these for your research projects. What constitutes a smart dog? Yeah, well, I have to say we don't really call these dogs smart because smart would indicate maybe intelligence in general, which is a series of cognitive skills that let you flexibly learn and adapt to the environment and solve problems. In this project, which we call the Gifted Dogs Project, we focus on one specific cognitive skill, which is the capacity to learn object names. And not only, but the capacity to learn many object names in a very short time. Okay, so gifted is very discreet in terms of what you constitute as gifted for the sake of this study. Yes, we consider dogs gifted in word learning in this sense. We just abbreviate to the Gifted Dogs Project but the appropriate name would be the Gifted Word Learner Dogs Project. So that would make it more understandable, I think. That is a mouthful. So in order to recruit these dogs, you did the Genius Dog Challenge, and you found six dogs from around the world who went through this challenge. Describe that and how that led to what you're doing today. Yes. So I'll start from the beginning. As I started to work on a project on word learning and language learning, language processing in dogs, I just realized at the very start that there was really little scientific literature on the topic. So not much was known about how dogs 
learning how dogs understand human language, how do they process our language, whether they actually do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so basically we were just literally brainstorming on what to start with, what studies, what experiments. And uh, we basically came in touch just by chance with an owner of a dog that knew the name of, back then it was like 50 toy names. Which This is Whiskey, right? This is whiskey. This name. So it all this starts with whiskey, whiskey, like so many all, things. It all started with whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It might be just a combination, though. So basically, the owner said that the dog knew the name of 50 toys. But we met him just by chance because he came to interview some of us at the department. And uh, when he interviewed me, he asked me what I was working on. I said, I'm working on a word learning project. And he said, oh, you know, my dog knows the name of 50 so mm, <laughs> toys and honestly I didn't believe him but I was polite enough not to say I don't believe it so I said oh, okay that sounds interesting maybe you can send me a video about how your dog does right mm-hmm. and of course after five minutes I forgot totally the issue but after a couple of days these guys goes back home and uh, sends me a video of the dog actually retrieving toys from another room apparently by hearing the name. So in the video, you would see it was a video taken with a phone. So you would see the dog and you would hear the owner saying, bring me the giraffe. And you see in the video, the dog goes to another room. So enters another room and then you don't see anymore what happens. And then she comes out of the room with a giraffe in her mouth. Mm -hmm. And then he asks for another toy. And then, you know, the same story repeats. So I got interested because at first I didn't believe what he was saying because many owners, many of us, I have a dog. We are all sure our dog is super smart. As I said, we all think we have the smartest, most gifted dog. And I can confirm as a scientist that dogs are very smart in the social cognitive domain. Mm -hmm. So they really, really can communicate with us very nicely and very efficiently. We understand each other and so on. But this seemed like something that goes beyond that because I was convinced that the owner thought that the dog knew the name because when he would say the name, maybe he would, you know, move his eyes to the direction of the toy a little bit. So mm-hmm. to guide the dog with some physical cues. But since the toys were in another room in the video that he sent me, apparently there could be no such cues. So apparently the dog must have known the name of the toys. Mm-hmm. So I decided this was interesting enough. And uh, we decided to to travel to Norway where Helge, Whiskey's owner, lives. And to test the dog in his house. And to my biggest surprise, I found it was true. The dog really knew the name of 50 toys. She was able to retrieve them, well, even when I asked for them, with a different pronunciation, of course, because my Norwegian is not super good. <laughs> and uh, it, with all sorts of controls. So this was really something interesting. And we had found that the dog was also able to categorize the toys so Whiskey had a bunch of frisbees, a bunch of balls, a bunch of rings, and a bunch of ropes. Each of them had a name, which included the word rope, uh, ring, or whatever the category was. Mm-hmm. And so I asked myself, okay, maybe she has formed a mental representation of a category. So maybe she knows that toys that have this shape or that are made this way are called balls. Not only these four, five, six, whatever she had, but maybe new ones as well. She's able to sort them in categories. And we did an experiment and we found that she was able to categorize the toys. So she not only had learned to associate 
a name to an item, but she was also able to form mental categories that had a label. So there was a label called balls, there was a label called frisbees and so on. And this was very interesting, something somewhat similar to human infants way of learning words and mentally thinking about the world. And at, at the same time, it was astonishing that she would learn so many words. And we were wondering, okay, but how about other dogs? I mean, why is whiskey special? Right. Do other dogs do the same? Meanwhile, we were able to get in touch with another dog that knew the name of many toys. This dog was Vicky Nina from Brazil. Mm -hmm. I have a Brazilian colleague and she saw this dog being popular in the social media in Brazil because uh, she knew the name of toys. This dog was a Yorkshire Terrier. Whereas Whiskey was... A Border Collie. A Border Collie, which is commonly associated with, oh, they're the smartest dogs, right? Yeah, you know, there are dogs that are selected for working. So when right. it comes to cooperation with humans, they can definitely outperform non-herding breeds. Mm -hmm. But in this specific skill, well, we can come to the topic of breeds again at the end, because I think that's maybe better once we have a little more information on the overall picture. Okay. But in any case, this Vikinina is a, was, unfortunately, she passed away, was a Yorkshire. Mm -hmm. And so we tested her as well. And she also knew the name of many toys. She also was able to learn them very quickly. So basically, Whiskey and Vikinina were tested similarly in a couple of studies. And yet, at the same time, we had our big question mark in our heads about why my dogs doesn't seem to learn the name of toys. Is it me? Is it the way they're trained? So we decided to carry out a long and tiring study <laughs> with many dogs, trying to teach them words in the way that was used by the owners of Whiskey and Bikinina to teach these two dogs the name of toys. So... The way that uh, the owners of Whiskey and Vikinina taught the name was very similar. I mean, based on their reports, of course. Mm -hmm. And it was even not necessarily voluntary. So they didn't decide, okay, I'm going to teach my dog toy names. They say, well, it just happened that they learned by playing with us. So what was the, describe the methodology. Yeah, we tried to investigate that as well. It turns out that, you know, it's pretty much what we all could do with our dogs or even with a kid to introduce a new toy. So maybe you get a gift from somebody for your dog or you just buy a new toy and you show it to your dog and you say, ah, look, this is the ball. Go get the ball. You throw the ball. The dog brings the ball. And you repeatedly, you, while you play, since we are very talkative creatures, we tend to give names and we, we tend to repeat the name during playful interactions. Mm -hmm. And these dogs had learned the names this way. So this was the only report of having some success in teaching words. I mean, when I say words here, I would like to point out I refer to the names of objects, names of toys. So this was the successful way these two dogs had learned. Was it critical that this was a new toy that was being introduced to their domain? Or did you even look at that? Like, oh, this is new, has novelty, and therefore now I'm going to start naming it versus a toy that is, they've seen for a while. We did not investigate, but as far as I know, all of their toys have names. So I... I don't think they have toys that do not have names, Okay. right? I, I would say probably, I don't have kids, but I imagine that if I would have a child, his toys would have names like, you know, there's the Plash Dog and we can call it Plash Dog mm -hmm. or we can call it Fido, mm -hmm. but it has a name, right? When we refer to it and we tell the kid, oh, go get your Plash Toy or go get Fido. But whether we call it Plash Toy or Fido, that's a name. Mm -hmm. So I imagine that this is how it, how it went. 
we didn't investigate on that, but I think that these dogs only have named toys. But in any case, what we did is we tried to reproduce the same playful interaction while playing and naming the toys with dogs of many breeds, including many Border Collies, uh, because many of these dogs that apparently learn words are Border Collies, although not all of them. So we tried to include many Border Collies, but also other breeds, old dogs that were motivated for toys, of course. Not all dogs maybe like toys very much. So we mm -hmm. tried to include only dogs that were motivated for toys. And we trained these dogs very intensively every day with their owners, of course. So their owners were required to train at home on a daily basis. And they trained with us, with a dog trainer, once a week. So we really did our best to follow up and, and keep it up for many months. Mm -hmm. The study formally lasted for three months. Mm -hmm. But actually, some of the owners were motivated enough to go on for five months, nine months, 12 months, and so on. Well, it turned out that none of the dogs learned nothing, like zero. <laughs> Not even two toys. Two is the minimum number that we need to make sure that the dogs discriminate between one and the other based on a word. Yeah. Because otherwise, if you only have one, they could just learn to pick that one up. Mm -hmm. Because this one is maybe the one that is associated to a word, the one you like, the one you'll be happy if they bring. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to avoid this. We just wanted to make sure that they were learning the names. So two is the minimum. We got nothing. We really got nothing. It was quite depressing, <laughs> I have to say, for us. But we basically found out that this skill is definitely not widespread. It's something super specific, super rare. And only a few dogs possess this ability. So back then, actually, when we carried out this study, by word of mouth, social media publishing, and trying to find more dogs that knew the name of toys, we had managed to find overall six dogs that knew the name of, say, 20 plus or 50 plus whatever toys. And it's those six dogs that entered that video contest that you did on live on the internet. Yes, these are the six dogs that entered the video contest. And here comes the story of the video contest, because six dogs are definitely not enough to really understand this phenomenon, mm -hmm. because it seems to be something like talent, it seems to be something specific. We know that in humans, talent is a known phenomenon. We know that, you know, Einstein maybe was not the same as most human beings. Mozart was not definitely the same as most human beings. But where does this talent come from? And in humans, it is really difficult to study. So we think that we have evidence for this phenomenon in dogs, that there are dogs that are talented in a specific cognitive domain, which is word learning. And so this could be very useful to understand talent better. But we need a bigger study population. We cannot do much with six dogs. So how to increase the population of dogs that can participate in our studies since they are rare by definition, right? This is not easy. And so we came up with this idea of doing the Genius Dog Challenge to basically bring science, bring this scientific research, which is also interesting and exciting, not necessarily only for scientists, but I think that this is really interesting for everyone, mm -hmm. to bring this to their homes. It also happened during the pandemic, so people were staying home more and maybe were looking for something interesting to learn or to do. So we decided to run a scientific study where we challenged the owners to teach their dogs a given amount of toys in a short period of time. So we told them to teach in the first part of the challenge six names of toys in a week, and then in the second part of the challenge, 12 names of toys in a week. 
And we carried out the test to see whether the dogs had learned these toys in the seventh day, but the test was carried out online, live, broadcasted all over the world over social media. Mm -hmm. So everybody could actually be present during the scientific test where the dogs were asked to bring this and that toy. And the way the test worked is they received a box of toys and they had six toys and they had to learn at least the toys in that period of time. And then more toys were sent to them. So they yeah. basically were a recipient of toys. Yeah, 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 exactly. So basically that is a cheap the- study, doctor. That's good. That's a really <laughs> well- well-formulated study. I will not bore you with the difficulties we have had for shipping toys all over the world. Dog <laughs> toys got stuck in customs I don't know oh. how many times. And probably the police dogs working at the customs are still having some fun with our toys. That's hilarious. But that's life. <laughs> so I'm intrigued with the concept of the words because part of it when we're trying to dissect language is how does something sound. We know that the dogs aren't reading, at least not yet, but we know that they're listening, they're hearing a word. And you come from Italy, which I think is one of the most lyrical languages. I mean, there's there's a music to Italian and it's, you know, very distinct from say German or English or Swedish. And you had these dogs all over the world. What impact does the sound of the word have in terms of the dog's ability to understand and remember? I mean, first of all, for answering these questions, I think we would really need a big, big, big population, which at the moment we don't have. Mm -hmm. But the sound itself, I think that what is important is that the sound of one word is different from the sound of another word. Owners of these dogs report that they tend to confuse dogs that have similar names. Mm -hmm. So if a toy is, I don't know, is called cat and another one is called bat, maybe they might confuse them which is probably similar to what humans would do. I'm not very expert on that, but it sounds reasonable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but in that sense, I mean, we have dogs from Brazil, we have dogs from the Netherlands, we have dogs from the UK, we have dogs from many different countries with many different types of languages. So from the little I know, it doesn't seem to affect the ability, but to know this and to know the extent to which it does not or does affect, we would really need a big population, at least to compare two countries. You know, we would need a big population of dogs, say, from Italy and then a big mm-hmm. population of dogs from Germany. And then, yeah, then we could do that. But at the moment, that's beyond our possibilities. So what is the next scope for your studies? And again, the studies are not just you. You have a team of researchers who are doing this in conjunction with a university. Yeah, sure. We are a group of scientists. It's not only me. Mm-hmm. I'm working with Adam Miklosi. I'm working with Andrea Sommese and Shani Dror in my team. And uh, we've been working with another scientist called Andrea Temesi. Now we will have a collaboration with other scientists as well from Hungary. Because this is, I mean, it's, it's very exciting from an owner's, dog owner perspective, because it's really, I mean, I have to say, it totally blew my mind to see Whiskey bring their toys. And I've been with dogs many years, not only as a scientist, but also as a dog trainer and as a dog owner. And it totally blew my mind. But also as a scientist, the topic is very interesting because it goes into extremely exciting directions. The first one is talent. And as I said, you know, we know that talent exists in humans, Mm -hmm. but it is a very elusive topic from a research perspective, because the things you can do in humans to disentangle where talent comes from are very limited. So we cannot take 
a number of children and say, okay, we expose these children only to music, but we do mm-hmm. not expose them to math. And then we see what happens. Mm-hmm. There are limitations, of course, in that sense. Mm-hmm. So it's not easy to understand. And on the other hand, we also, I mean, I assume there's talented ants and talented elephants, uh, but it was not known until we found out these talented dogs. So this is the first time that talent, so when I refer to talent, I always talk about a specific cognitive domain here. Something like this has been found in a non-human species. So this is interesting in itself, that the fact that talent is not only a uniquely human phenomenon. And so to understand where this talent comes from is one line of research that I, that I really aim to pursue. And the second one is about more about language, because language is, of course, a uniquely human feature in the sense of the you know, fully-fledged language that we speak as I am talking to you now. But the evolution of language and also the cognitive building blocks on which the development of language relies and how our way of seeing the world, our way of mentally representing the world is affected by language is something that we can maybe find out with the help of these dogs. Explain that, elaborate on that. What are the implications for human beings? Mm -hmm. You know, as human beings, we all speak language. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of difficult to say whether language really shapes the way we see the world, the way we mentally represent items in the world. But if we can compare dogs with these language skills or word learning skills with dogs that do not have these word learning skills in the way they represent the world, mm-hmm. then we can find out something where language has an effect for sure. Right. Mm-hmm. So imagine that these dogs categorize items differently or if these dogs mentally represent items differently from the typical dogs that do not learn words. This is probably the result of having given a name to some items in the work. Right. So they are able to refer to item or not, they do not use language in the productive way. Of course, they don't speak. They only understand. Well, at the moment, at least. <laughs> but uh, the way they represent things might differ. So we are doing several comparative studies with typical dogs that do not learn words to understand if they represent things differently as a result of learning the names. What is your thinking about the language buttons, where you know, those buttons that we've covered that before on Dog Podcast Network, these talking buttons where you can get basically a dog to speak back to you or communicate? Well, I would have to say I I would wait to read some scientific evidence on that and then I'd be happy to comment. But at the moment, I haven't seen any paper being published. Uh, I might be wrong, but I haven't seen. There is. We'll, We'll get some of that. To you. In fact, we'll put a link to that episode where we talk about that with you've encountered Dolly, right? And and other of these dogs that use these buttons to communicate. And this is great. Dog Podcast Network Connect Scientists. I think this is fascinating. I am also intrigued with this concept of toys versus other things in their environment. So, you know, have you looked at things like leashes and tables and food and things that are not necessarily toys, but are things that they encounter on a regular basis. Yeah, these probably are things that somehow dogs can learn easier. So for example, if we say, let's go for a walk, mm-hmm. my dog might get excited. But how much this is an association to the emotion or to the situation of going out versus referring to something is a little bit of a different mental skill. So one thing is to be able to refer to something with a word 
For example, if I say telephone, mm-hmm. I can refer to the telephone. I can talk about the telephone, although the telephone is not present. And I can talk about the absence of the telephone. I can say that I've lost my telephone. Where when I say to a dog, we go for a walk. But if I say we go for a walk in one year from now, my dog would probably react the same way. Mm-hmm. So probably my dog has just associated this sound to something exciting. And maybe this something exciting could be specifically going out to the park. But this doesn't mean that the dog is able to understand the word as referring to something in the world. The uniqueness of human language or one of the uniquenesses of human language is that we use words to refer to item. For example, there has been a study because in the past there has been, probably you've heard about that Rico and Chaser were two very famous dogs that had learned the name of multiple toys. Mm -hmm. Then this uh, topic has not been studied after that anymore. Probably now we know it's because of the rarity of the dogs. Mm -hmm. But one of the main criticism that had been raised at the very start was that the dogs may have only associated the word to the specific action of, okay, when you hear the word ball, you associate it to the behavior of picking up the ball and bringing it to the owner. So there has been one study where the dog was shown to be able to carry out different actions on the object. So the test would be that the owner would say, point to the ball, and the dog was able to point to the ball with his nose or touch the ball with the paw, and the dog was able to touch the ball with the paw. So carrying out different actions on the same object will be evidence that the dog is not only associating the words to the specific action of bringing the ball, but he can refer to the ball for different actions. So I asked earlier about whether the name of the object may have had an impact on their ability to learn, and we don't know in terms of language or whatever. The next question in a similar vein is how important is the dog's hearing? Well, I would say it's very important because it relies on hearing. Another team in my research team, Mm -hmm. more into the neuroscience, investigate how they perceive words, whether Mm -hmm. they, for example, discriminate to syllabs that are similar Mm -hmm. or a language which sounds differently, like, you know, English versus Hungarian, do they discriminate it? And they do so by neurological studies. So it right. seems that the brain of the dogs... They put dogs through MRIs. Yes. Okay. Yes. I know that's yes. not your specific thing, but that's a colleague. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm not a neuroscientist, so I really don't want to make mistakes. <laughs> okay. Well, can you basically describe it? Yeah, I can, I can give the very, like... Meta overview. <laughs> shallow overview, yes. <laughs> so basically, the dogs are trained to lay motionless in the MRI scanner. So they're not tied or enforced to be there. They go there voluntarily and they stay as long as they want to stay there. And uh, they are exposed to different stimuli. So in this case, it's uh, auditory stimuli. And the scanner basically tells you how their brain activates, whether different areas are activated at the same time during the exposure and during the control exposure. So for example, you can expose dogs to white noise as a control to see how the brain responds to white noise. And then two words that the dog may know, for example, praise words when you say, oh, good dog, you're being a good dog. And then control again and then, you know, something else. So you see how the different areas of the brain are activated. Mm -hmm. You can eventually try to make a comparison with what you know from humans or if you can scan humans at well in the same situation, you can make a comparison whether same or different areas are activated in that moment. 
That's all I can tell. <laughs> but I can refer you to the colleagues that do that happily. Yes, we want to do that because I think this is something we're going to continue to investigate. And so you'll connect us with the principal investigators on that because I think they use gibberish as one of the controls, like English and another language and Hungarian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they then, have been uh, comparing different languages. Yeah. So it turns out that dogs do discriminate between their own language. I mean, the language where they have been brought up, where they live, right. they can discriminate that from different ones. It's fascinating. So I asked a little bit about the words, I asked about hearing, and then I want to ask about this concept of inaudible words. There are a lot of people who listen to this show who have consulted somewhere in their lifetimes a animal communicator or a pet psychic or whatever. And pet psychics say that, oh, animals communicate or dogs communicate with thought pictures. And my question would be, and you look perplexed by this, you're like, what is this? My question is, is it possible that the words that they're hearing in terms of these toys are actually thought pictures that, say, Whiskey's owner was projecting and the dog was somehow able to pick up? Sure answer, no. <laughs> okay. Um, because you are a scientist. Yeah. Yes, of course. Yeah. I mean, when I will, again, when I will see a paper on that, right. I will be happy to comment. Till that moment, I'd rather say uh, I don't have really any evidence that this is happening in any situation. I mean, I can tell you one thing. Mm -hmm. Even as a dog trainer, dogs are really, really good at picking up little visual cues mm -hmm. that owners are not even aware of giving. So if I've been working on training dogs for other projects and social learning and do as I do. And, for example, training them to perform actions on verbal cue. So when you say the word, I don't know, spin, the dog is required to spin. Or when you, when you say the word down, the dog is required to go down. Mm -hmm. And if you want to teach them the word, that the word is the cue, you really have to work hard on the owners for them not to perform tiny little movements that they're totally unaware of performing, but the dog is relying on that prevent the dog from learning the words because the dogs would rather rely on the little posture little tiny eye movements, little tiny bending of the body forward, tiny, tiny. And the owners are totally sincere. They're not aware of giving those. Right. But the dogs are really skilled in picking those up. So this is, this is definitely a skill that dogs have. And when I said that they're very skilled in the social cognitive domain, I believe this is one of the skills they have. So they're awesome in that sense. Tell us a little bit about the do-as-I-do training that you developed. So the do as I do training, I developed it as a dog training method, but it was developed before me by other colleagues. First, actually in the 50s, to test imitative abilities in chimpanzees. So to test if a non-human species is able to imitate actions, they basically trained with this protocol, a chimpanzee, to match human demonstrated actions on cue, do it. So when a demonstrator would do an action and then say, do it, the chimpanzee was required to imitate. And a lot later, this was applied to a dog. And this is before I started my PhD, I think, that the study was published. So a dog was successfully trained with this protocol. And uh, as I was, I was a student then, I, I got very interested in the paper. But again, I was a bit skeptical. I was like, oh, wow, that sounds almost magic, right? What is it? And the protocol was very nicely descriptive, so I tried to apply it with my dog. And, wow, it was extremely successful. So there is a very specific training protocol that you can follow to train your dog for him to understand a rule, for him to learn a rule. That do it means copy, whatever action you have shown. 
So I found it was impressive. I was also working as a dog trainer back then, and I saw the potential of teaching dogs this way because instead of figuring out a way that might increase the probabilities that my dog will do, I don't know, something like opening the refrigerator and giving me a beer, Mm -hmm. I can actually show him the action and say, do it. If I have trained using the protocol and I haven't made mistakes, then my dog, if the dog is able to do the action at all, and if he understands, he will do it. So that's a much easier way to train dogs. I want to take a break right now, but when we come back, I want to kind of get into your back history of how you got into this, because it's through the law. And I want to hear how that evolved. We'll be right back. And now, a message from your dog. Oh, every day with you is like a day at the beach, and I want as many beach days as possible. Oh, I want to run. I want to sniff. Ooh, I want to find a good stick to carry. Oh, I want to roll in the grass. Oh, and warm my belly in the sun. Oh, I want to walk with you, run with you, sleep with you, eat with you. And when I eat with you, I want ever pup. The green, glassy beef liver smell wakes my senses. Oh, you may not realize this, but it tastes like homemade gravy. <laughs> it infuses any food you give me with healthy life vibrancy. Oh, <laughs> I can feel it. Ever pup traveling to every cell in my body, nourishing each one. I'm so grateful to be your dog. And for the ever pup you give me. So now that you know what your dog wants, get Everpup, the ultimate dog supplement. Everpup is available in select pet shops and on Amazon. But to get the best price possible, join the Everpup Club at everpupclub.com, where you'll get your first jar for just $8 with free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Go to everpupclub.com and use the discount code DPN. That is everpupclub.com. Everpup every day. We are back with Claudia. Welcome back. So I want to ask you how your life went to the dogs, because it didn't start out that way academically. No, I actually was a lawyer before a scientist, but I've always was passionate about animal behavior and about dogs. So after some years of working as a lawyer, I just decided to quit and uh, restart (laughs) from zero, (laughs) go back to university. And I decided to study dogs and focus on science. So that was just uh, because of my passion for this. Yeah. And uh, in this what, is, what, did, yeah. what did the people in your life think when you said, I'm not going to be a lawyer anymore. I'm going to study dogs. Well, you can imagine it was sort of a tragedy for my family. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, what happened to Claudia? She seemed like such a smart girl. Yeah, yeah exactly. But, uh, you know, I think following your passions is important in life. Mm-hmm. And it's I, I can't say I disliked being a lawyer, but it was not my passion either. Mm-hmm. And if you consider we spend most of our times working, I think it's very important that we do what we really love. And if it's a passion, we'll probably do it more passionately and we might even have some good results. So that was my line of thoughts. Of, of course, it hasn't been easy, but I, I mean, I had to restart from zero, but I really enjoyed the whole process of learning and I have enjoyed the, the whole history. So I don't regret at all, although I understand it's, it wasn't easy. <laughs> so you went from a lawyer to studying dogs as a dog trainer and now an academic studying. Yeah, basically, 
from a lawyer, I'm, I started a university program in the University of Pisa, Italy, that was focusing on dogs breeding, dog biology. I did a master on dogs ethology. And meanwhile, I was uh, working as a dog trainer because I received, basically, there was a master degree on dog training as well. So I was also working as a trainer to keep up also economically with my life. And then I, I went into science because I was really fascinated by by the deeper understanding you can get of dogs' abilities, dogs' cognitive abilities through science. So I decided to go for a PhD and I got really passionate and decided to remain in science. So talk to me a little bit about how this collaboration with these different dog researchers what the genesis was. How did that start? For me, you mean? You were doing your own research and then you, you're collaborating with these other researchers. I'm basically, I work in the University of Budapest. Mm -hmm. So we are, it's called Family Dog Project. It's probably the biggest uh, research group on dogs ethology in the world. We are about 60, I think, between students and researchers and professors. And uh, since, of course, such a group is not, it is not possible that we all work on one topic. So we have our own smaller groups, which investigates on different topics. So for example, I lead the group that works at the moment on language learning. Other researchers focus more on the neuroethology part and they have their own teams, but we are all a big family. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically we have like weekly meetings where we share our ideas and mostly the PhD students talk about their projects and receive feedback. We think that it is very important to give them feedback because that can help them, you know, constructively criticizing what they aim to do before it's too late and they have done it already can help them plan better studies. We discuss about our results, how to interpret them, and I think it is very useful. So even though it's the University of Budapest, you have colleagues who are doing this research from all over. Mm, not really. I work only with the University of Budapest. Right. I do collaborate for specific projects with maybe other professionals. So, for okay. example, I collaborate with dog trainers on the Do As I Do projects. Mm. But I, I do not have, uh, at the moment, collaborations with other researchers that are not from my... I mean, occasionally, of course, we do we do collaborate, but that's not the case at the moment. Talk a little bit about episodic memory and the importance of that and how that's different from other types of memory that a dog has. So episodic memory seems to be very interesting because it was thought to be a uniquely human type of memory. And it is briefly described as, well, there's different ways to define episodic memory. It was originally defined as the memory of what, when, and where of an event. So if you remember what happened, where it happened, and when it happened, then you have an episodic memory of that event. But actually, this definition seems to be a little outdated because it seems to be neither necessary nor enough for us to actually recall an event or remember an event. So, for example, I can tell you where the French Revolution happened, what happened and where it happened but clearly I was not there. I cannot have a recollection of the event. I did not experience it. Mm -hmm. So the definition that I, along with other colleagues, have used to study episodic memory is the definition of remembering an event that at the time when it happened, you did not know it was important to remember. So it's the incidental encoding of the event which classifies this memory as episodic memory. 
And this discriminates episodic memory from semantic memory, which is memory of facts and rules, things that you know versus things that you have experienced and you can remember. So having operationalized the definition that way, Mm -hmm. we came up with a method to test it by using the do as I do method. So with the do as I do method, the first step is that the dogs are trained to learn the rule that do it means copy. That term, do it. Do it, do it, or any term you decide to use mm-hmm. during the training. I mean, I just use do it for the sake of simplicity. Mm-hmm. So basically, you show dogs an action, you say do it, and they will imitate the action. Now, if you put a little delay between, or little big delay between the action and the do it, then this is like asking the dog, do you remember what your owner did or what the person that did the action? Mm -hmm. And we carried out some studies on dog's memory, whether they would remember their owner's actions after delays. At first, we started with a minute and 10 minutes delay. And when we saw the dogs were very good at remembering for those delays, we increased the delay and we even tested dogs after 24 hours. And they, of course, were not as good as with 10 minutes, but some dogs still remembered. Mm -hmm which was very impressive. But also in the process, they basically learned that this was the action that they were required to copy. So this was not episodic memory. This was actually semantic memory. So I know what you what you have done. When you will say do it, I will do this action. But you don't have to re-experience the episode in your mind. I'll make an example, which is a very nice paper on episodic memory by Thomas Zental that if I now ask you, what did you have for breakfast this morning? When you receive this question, since you did not expect me to ask it, then you probably go, okay, where was I this morning? I was was late for work, so I didn't really have time for breakfast, and I just had a coffee. But what you do in your mind is you try to relieve, you place yourself again into into your kitchen and remember that what looking at the watch, oh no, it's late. And so you relieve the episode in your mind. And this this is a feature of episodic memory. But if I ask you every day, if I phone call you every day and I ask you, what did you have for breakfast? And this happens every day at a point where, apart from me being very boring, at a point when you will have... don't know that my breakfast is boring. (laughs) I don't know. But when you are having breakfast, you probably go like, oh, today I'll have to tell Claudia, I don't know, a toast. Mm -hmm. And when I ask you, you don't need to relive the experience, replay the experience. You just know the answer. Mm -hmm. You know, a toast. When you hear me, a toast, you already know. And that's semantic memory. And this was the case probably for the dogs we trained. That was very easy for them because they had learned the rule. They had, they had learned the game. So they knew that, you know, when the do it is given, okay, this is the action that you have done and I will do it. But to test episodic memory, we needed them not to expect the do it. So what we did was we retrained them again in a situation where... Basically, the demonstrations of the owners were not relevant anymore for them, so they did not need to remember because whatever the owner was demonstrating, the dog was asked to perform another action. So the dogs were asked to lie down. So in the situation of the do as I do, the owner said, stay and watch me. The owner would perform an action, but then instead of do it, the owner was always give a lie down command. So whatever the owner has done, you're asked to lie down, which makes the do it unexpected because now the dog expects the lie down. But they do not de-learn. It's just that they do not expect it because for so many times they have been asked to lie down now that they do not expect to do it anymore. 
And also that the actions that the owner performs is irrelevant. So they may or may not remember it. But it's not something that when they observe it, they go like, ah, I have to remember this. Okay, so it's like when you are the witness of a crime scene, Mm -hmm. you may or may not remember that there was a lady passing by with, I don't know, a yellow pullover Mm -hmm. because that was not relevant. But if you remember it, then this is probably an episodic memory. So this is what we did. We retrained the dog not to expect to do it anymore. Mm -hmm. And then in the test situation, unexpectedly, we do a demonstration. And instead of the lie down command, we give the do it command. So in this case, it was unexpected. And we could test whether they remember the action that they can, even though it was a case of incidental encoding. And the dogs did remember, although less than in the case when it was expected, which is also typical of episodic memory, that it decays faster. And what do you do with that information? What's the next thing that follows from that research? Well, you could investigate more into what they remember and what are the things that affect memory. At the moment, we're not going on in that direction. We have too many other things to do. But there has been research on other species as well. So what species may actually have this type of memory? It might turn out that it's not such a complex cognitive skill as it was thought before. So it's definitely not necessarily uniquely human but other species may have it as well. There has been studies on rats, for example, pigeons. And so this is all follow-up questions that can be investigated. So if someone is listening to this podcast or watching this podcast, and they suspect that they their dog may be a genius, how would they go about testing that? So the first thing is that I would warmly recommend that they put the objects that they think their dog knows by name in a different room or behind a panel where they are not in visual contact with them. So Mm -hmm. the owner should not see the toys. This way, we ensure that when they ask for the name of a toy, they're not giving visual cues to guide the dog to one or the other toys. And as I said, these visual cues can be very subtle and the owner can be totally unaware of giving them. So this is a very important thing to do that we make sure we're not giving cues or even if we're giving, the, we cannot because we don't know where the toys are. So for example, you sit in your kitchen and you put the toys in the living room and then you ask your dog to bring the toys. I would warmly recommend to avoid asking first for the favorite toy of the dog because if a dog has one that is his favorite, he's very likely to go and pick it up first, whatever you have asked for. So yeah. to make sure that he's really relying on the name you should ask for not the favorite one first. And then one by one, you can ask for the others. And if you see that the dog is bringing them, I would really, really be happy if you contact us at the Genius.Challenge website. Mm -hmm. There is a tab that you can push where you can apply to participate in our research because we really need to have more dogs that know the name of toys helping us in our research. How many dogs have you recruited so far? I know you had the six in the study a few years ago, but yeah. how many have you gotten through this process? No, with the Genius Dog Challenge, we received a big amount of uh, requests and, I mean, of uh, subscriptions, so to say. And uh, we now have about 25 or so. So we have a lot more. Okay. All of them are all over the world. So we work mostly with online testing. So distance is not a problem. Mm-hmm. So if you have a dog, you know what to do check and you can contribute to this important research. Do you look into the future and think, my gosh, this is going to go in like 
crazy directions or are you pretty focused on on what you're doing now? No, this can really go in crazy directions. Like what? Uh, I mean, at least there's at least there's these two directions that I really want to pursue. And uh, understanding where these talent come from is a question that almost doesn't let me sleep at night because mm. I really can't figure out where this talent comes from. Yeah. At the moment, we are investigating on it, of course. And uh, how language affects how dogs think, how this capacity affects how they represent the word. These are the two main directions that I that I aim to pursue. Now, earlier in our conversation, you said breeds. We'll talk about that later. Let's talk about that now. Yeah. What has your research indicated about the relative genius, gifted skills of various breeds? So... It is definitely true that the vast majority of the gifted word learner dogs are border collies. Mm -hmm. But I have to say that the first important information that I have to provide is that the vast majority of border collies still does not seem to have the skill because we tested many typical border collies and they were not able to learn the words. Mm -hmm. And also we have a lot of other breeds included or mixed breeds. So, I mean, the majority is Border Collies, but we do have mixed breeds. We do have German Shepherd. We do have uh, Pekingese, super fun dogs. Uh, we have had a Yorkshire Terrier in the literature. There is another Yorkshire Terrier reported. We have an Australian Shepherd. We have different breeds. So, yeah, the majority is Border Collies, which may make you think about something genetic or may make you think that maybe this even the function, the cooperative function for which the dog was bred may play a role, which is also very reasonable to think. But it's definitely not an exclusively border collie trait. And it's important to remind everyone that having a border collie doesn't necessarily automatically mean that the dog will learn the name of toys. I've had a border collie too. He didn't learn the name of toys. He was lovely and smart, but that was not his skill. So what kind of dog do you have now? I hear, if I, just on cue, I heard a dog bark. What do you have now? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not home with my dog at the moment, but I have a Czechoslovakian wolf dog. You have a what? Czechoslovakian wolf dog. It's a breed that was created in the 50s, crossing German shepherds and wolves. Yeah. It's actually widespread in Italy now, not in other countries. It's a, luckily because it's not an easy breed. Yeah. Yeah, she's lovely, and but of course I had to work a lot with her to socialize her properly and everything. Is she a genius? She is, but not in learning words. <laughs> <laughs> she's genius in opening the refrigerator and stealing my lunch. <laughs> yeah, every dog has its own genius, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Those are good words to end on. Claudia, thank you so much for being with us today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure. We will be following Dr. Fugatza and her team to see what their science tells us about these super talented dogs. If you'd like to have your dog be a part of the study, you can go to GeniusDogChallenge.com. That is GeniusDogChallenge.com and see if your dog has what it takes to be a genius, at least in the toy naming part of genius. That is all we have time for on today's episode. I want to thank you for spending a little time with us today. If you'd like to find out more about The Long Leash and our back episodes, you can visit our website at longleashshow.com. We are available on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts, so please make sure you follow us. I'm James Jacobson. On behalf of all of us here at Dog Podcast Network, I want to wish you and your dog a very warm aloha. Aloha. <laughs>